strategy. Tess, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys. It's nice to be back and catch up with you. Yeah, I know. It's, it's always great catching up with you, Tess, because I know you're up to so many different things and have your fingers in a lot of interesting pies. What have you been up to lately? Kind of all over the map here, but lately I told you back when you were in Detroit here about the property I was looking to get in, in East Bulltown, Detroit here, and actually ended up getting seven vacant lots and working on um, opening that space up, which we'll get into a little bit further into the talk here, but that's been keeping me busy majority of the year utilizing the summer for that a lot and I've been working from home as an environmental scientist so sometimes I do still have to go out into the field and do some sampling but working on stuff from home and just spending time with family I have a, a nephew another nephew on the way which is exciting and yeah just trying to utilize the time wisely Great. Well, congratulations on the new uh, family member. The clan Thanks. is growing. <laughs> it is. Maybe you could start by giving us a little bit of your educational background, what kind of things you studied or worked on when you were younger that led you to having such a passion and involvement with fungi these days. Yeah, absolutely. I was originally studying microbiology. I've always had like a passion for microbes and microscopes and kind of looking at the finer things in life. Uh, but throughout like my schooling, I'm like, okay, everyone's like a pre-med student and like nothing against pre-med students, but it, I kind of didn't feel in the right niche, I guess. So kind of was like looking further into my options and found like the environmental department and environmental science programs. And I really was drawn to that because it was like a mixture of biology and geology. And I'm like all about that. So I finished out school with a science degree in environmental science and did some research with soil remediation along the way. And yeah, that's kind of where it started. Went to Wayne State University in Detroit. I was at MSU, Michigan State University for a little bit, but um, I wanted to be back in Detroit and I kind of resonated more with the city of Detroit. So I graduated from Wayne State University here in Detroit. Cool. And you're from Detroit, right? Yeah. Nice. Love the so. D. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite a place. Yeah. <laughs> so you finished school and you got into soil remediation. And was that when you started working in environmental consulting? Yeah. So I started looking for jobs right away, like right after college. I didn't really take a break or anything. I was like ready to get into it. I started doing environmental consulting for like an industrial hygiene company. So I was doing like more air quality, which wasn't really what I had in mind because I, I really have a passion for soil, kind of working from the ground up, but it was still like a very good place to start off and become well-rounded in all of the elements, right? So I got to, you know, get my hands into air stuff and then I ended up kind of looking around for another job and landed one actually working with soil so that's what i'm doing right now i can elaborate on that now or we can talk about that later <laughs> let's get a little further into your uh, quest of mycology before we sure. uh, get into those details mm -hmm. um, but i know the the soil draws a lot of us in i mean i know craig that seems to be uh what's really consuming your attention these days right definitely is yeah well it's we're not really taught about it much in the same way like kind of fungi we're kind of taught that it's like dirt 
bird treated as just like, oh, yeah, like, you know, put a seed in the ground, fertilize it, plant it, things grow in it, right? When it's like more of a superorganism and it's like once you learn more about it, it's like, wait, why aren't we taught more about this? Or like, why don't we understand this? And why is there like kind of just a, a fundamental misunderstanding that's even propagated to like a number of like higher levels of application and work on it. So yeah, that's definitely something with understanding the intersection between the geology, which is the current state of it, soil texture and soil composition, but also like the organic matter content, which is perpetuated by biological activity, which is like definitely, I, I'm glad it's kind of getting more attention to focus, but yeah, it's, it's a black box. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And, and so was it through the path of soil that you ended up getting pulled into mycology tests? Um, I mean, it kind of goes like hand in hand. I mean, I've always had like a passion or like interest in fungi because it's weird. It's different. I'm like weird and different. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah. it's like and then having like a passion for like nature and science and soil and all these dynamics and realizing that mycology holds all of that together and it, it all came together at one point and I was like wow this is all connected and I can like love mushrooms and not just be looked at like a freak or like psychedelic you know goofball or something like it's I can actually like weave it into my profession and the science portion of my life soil did definitely have a big part of that I would say <laughs> yeah so you eventually uh, found yourself in a more diverse and broad uh, mushroom community it sounds like mm-hmm. and what was your first mycology related hobby or action or activity that you started engaging in um let's see with actual mycology i would say um like doing some studies in college with soil remediation and then getting into bioremediation and then diving deeper into the micromediation portion of it, like how fungi can actually be applied in this way. People aren't really accepting of even bioremediation in the first place. So bringing like fungi into it was like super bizarre. And this was like five, six years ago. And I think just because fungi are becoming more mainstream, I think this idea is being accepted more, you know, to hire up scientists and whatnot, soil scientists. But um, I would say doing some, you know, research in college and then working with grassroots hubs, um, in the city and and actually Chris Wright he's passed away now but he was like my first mentor with mycology and going to his like log cultivation workshops yeah I think I might have met Chris when I was up there did you, did he oh, come you to did. the he, presentation yes you did meet him yep he came to the presentation at um, Wayne State and unfortunately he passed away earlier this year and it was pretty sudden and really sad but yeah Rest in mushrooms and mead. You're involved in some mushroom cultivation now, right? And you've kind of been trying to get into growing mushrooms as a, as a food source. And uh, when did you get into that? And what made you interested in the food cultivation side of things? It really wasn't my initial plan to grow mushrooms like for food. But I thought it was just another aspect to get into for food security and like being in a city where there are areas like affected by food insecurity, especially healthy food and just like these food desert areas that I just found it so unjust and so unfair and just kind of sharing the role that mushrooms can play for health in a food source. 
So just kind of adding that to the plate of things that I'm currently doing, kind of just sharing how communities can start these mushroom food grows um, just for health of human consumption. So it's more so passing along the information and not so much like doing it myself, just sharing the information and the skill set. Do you think there's a common trend where, you know, definitely when it talks about how fungi, it's a pretty broad application. It's, it's pretty pretty interesting where there's like food production, but also like ways you can remediate the soil, but even kind of the lessons. And it's interesting. Do you think we're moving more towards a decentralized and distributed system for like people taking food local and slow, which is kind of moving away from the traditional system of like centralized that was kind of more of an industrial system? And do you think like a lot of people are starting to get that because of like learning about fungi or kind of these parallel styles of networks that like actually help to build communities i mean yeah i think you could say that in in the fact that people are trying to resonate more with their food and where it comes from where i feel like for a long time we were kind of disconnected to our food and even like eating meat in the first place not even knowing where the hell it came from but even like what it is like what part say you're eating like beef like oh what part of the cow even is it's just like totally dis disconnected from what it is, let alone where it came from. And I think people are starting to, you know, care more about their health and the health of the community. And I think with mushrooms, you know, they show us patience and they provide us with, I guess, the consciousness and awareness of kind of what we're doing on all aspects, so. That's good. Yeah, I think that it's it's kind of interesting because really it's something that it's ineffable. It's like hard to describe and articulate because it's such an innate part of, especially when you're learning about fungi, whether it's just cultivation or learning about the roles they play or just their basic biology, you're seeing this kind of pattern and how information is shared, mm-hmm. you know, and how a lot of it is, yeah, like this, it's moving from a centralized to decentralized model. And we're learning, okay, like a lot more knowledge, a lot more understanding is happening from this kind of hands-on local engagement where it's not just a regurgitation or re-articulation of a, a setup or established or you know widespread curriculum where it's kind of these these micro curriculums based upon the people in your community and sharing these this knowledge and data overall absolutely yeah you're kind of referring to the metaphorical nature of fungi you know we talk a lot about what they actually do but also them as kind of a a model for maybe how we organize ourselves as humans and societies and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And so would you like to talk a little bit about the history and culture of Detroit and that would make it kind of a ripe place for uh, urban agriculture or experimental food security endeavors? Detroit is kind of like a blank slate in many areas because of so much vacancy after the riots, if you're familiar with the, the riots in the 1960s, really it's known as one of the most intense riots in American history, just like rebellion against like police brutality and racial inequality. And after this, many people fled Detroit. So from the 1960s being at like 1.5 million residents to now I believe we're around 700,000, it essentially was abandoned in a way. and. The silver lining, I guess, with that happening is it's paved a way for natural restoration to occur. And so it's, it's pretty interesting to walk around Detroit and you can chime in anytime, um, Leaf, because I know you came here and experienced this yourself. 
you see a lot of areas that are vacant but like have restored itself naturally in like a natural way where it created these urban ecosystems in a way and i think that's very healthy for vacant land so a lot of this land is you know up for grabs through the land bank and if you have like a project in mind or you know any idea that you're brewing up detroit's a great place you know to develop because people are super welcoming to new ideas and wanting to see this transformation in these um, vacant areas so yeah, it's a great hot spot for urban agriculture and different projects. What, what yeah. were your thoughts when you came here, you know? Yeah, I had a, probably the most memorable experience with this specific topic. It was when you, you told me I had to go to the Motown Museum. And oh, um, I, was, I was, you know, I was being cheap. So I was like, I'll, I'll just walk <laughs> there. It's only a mile and a half away. And I'd say maybe two thirds of the walk was in what seemed like uninhabited areas of the city so i've you know i've seen plants growing out of the cracks and sidewalks and things like that and you know feral vegetation in the city before but i really had never seen it on this scale in terms of yeah it was almost like a robust ecology was developing within the city there was even a like a, a wetland just on a city block that you know it definitely wasn't a constructed wetland it just the you know i, I imagine the original landscape of Detroit is it's like a river delta kind of swamp right mm -hmm. and so it was like the swamp was reforming here just on the city block there <laughs> and a funny aside is as I was walking through and I, I walk over a bridge over the highway and I'm walking past this what looks like a maybe it was still active it kind of looked like a decommissioned factory or warehouse and this car drove by me I walked, you know, a little further down, and then I saw the same car drive by me again and slow down, and you know, slow down next to me, and I was all like, "Oh no, who, who's this? Uh, well, they're, they're gonna, they're gonna come mess with the lost tourist guy." And then it was actually some guy asking me for directions because he was lost, and I was like, "All right, wow. I guess people don't really <laughs> hang out here." And you know, I, I saw maybe one or two other people walking out there, but it was. Uh, it was, the, I guess, the first time I'd been in a city where you're in the city and then there's just an expanse of a few blocks where it's, you know, there's no, uh, let's say, residential homes there. I don't want to say nobody's there or nobody lives there. But it right. was, uh, you know, it was, it was <laughs> right? I, I, you know, I imagine, you know, not all the places are completely vacant. But seeing kind of this, like, if we think about ecological succession and, you know, usually we're, you know, thinking of, uh, you know, the... Uh, the the degraded weeds turning into the prairie or the forest and whatever and then you have cities built because there's there was too much ecological succession so you got to you know drain the swamp or cut the trees down and build the city and then so this was interesting because it was almost seeing like a little bit of a template or a microcosm of and then when the people leave the city and then nature comes back in and then we're mm -hmm. you know restarting the ecological succession just with you know more concrete and right angles than probably before it was, uh, yeah, it was interesting to see because it was almost like peering into this part of the human condition, the human influence, and, you know, which might be more of the future of other cities to some extent or another. And, you know, not not saying that in some, like, bleak, like, everyone's got to leave and it's going to be uninhabited, but maybe, you know, the population densities that have developed aren't going to be sustainable and then cities are going to have more of this open space. Then it's kind of like... Now, what do people do with that? Is it, are we going to try to just turn it into a bunch of condos that nobody can afford to move into? Or is there an option to 
build, you know, dynamic community spaces where food can be grown. And it sounds like that's kind of like part of what you're aiming to do right now with uh, some of your work, right? Yeah. And, um, and just to allow that natural restoration to keep occurring and not just like, as you said, you know, just constructing it or selling it off to like builders. And because in that case, you know, the soil is really getting depleted. And that's one of the biggest issues right now, you know, is um, soil depletion. But yeah, that is a part of my project, part of Fungi Freights, is taking these lots and allowing natural restoration to occur, but in a kind of a more manicured way, and also providing a space for community growth where we can like dive into citizen science, environmental awareness, environmental justice, just within the community and just providing that space for people to get involved with this, as well as learning how to grow um, mushrooms for their own food consumption and um, medicine. So providing educational classes on that and a place for people to come and express themselves as well, you know, kind of a, a hub for people to come and share their work or, you know, whether it's like mycology related or just in the natural sciences or even art or music. So yeah, it seems like that's a lot of different things going on, but uh, essentially revolves around uh, mycology and the natural sciences. Well, getting back to that mycology metaphor, there's a lot of different things involved, but they're all kind of connected and some sort of yes. network. Yes, the mycelial web, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's talk more about the citizen science thing, and maybe, Craig, you can uh, ask some questions or chime in on this, because I know you've got a lot of experience with citizen science and community lab type stuff, and maybe how some of the stuff you worked on and you know related to what Tess is doing, or maybe like what some of her spaces could potentially become one day. Yeah, that's kind of a big thing now. There's a big factor that I think by 2050, we're anticipating that 70% of people are going to be living in urban areas. So we think a lot about food production. And so urban agriculture has kind of been a big push. So especially in New York City, and I'm, I'm sure cities are all across the, not only the United States, but across the world, where people are trying to take up aspects of a community gardens, like learning how to take a piece of property and turn it into a space where you can grow food. But at the same time, there's a big thing about understanding beyond the aspect of doing community core culture, which is great, you know, and engaging with like taking these aspects and allowing this ecological side to happen. Like, then what is the history of the places we're inhabiting? You know, what is the history of industrial activity? And that's one thing, even in New York City, we're dealing with a legacy where there may have been heavy metals, contaminants, toxins, whether they're um, pollutants, organic or inorganic, natural or anthropogenic, microbial and how to educate people, not only just to be aware of them, but how we can work with these biological processes to remediate or to reduce or to more so manage them in a way that they actually can function in like a natural ecology. So I think uh, part of kind of is might be a transition to kind of complement how we talked about what you're doing with fungi freights, but how do you see the carryover to your professional career in environmental consulting or, or environmental engineering to more of the grassroots advocacy of education with uh, fungi freights? I think, you know, having this profession alongside being part of the grassroots project and community involvement is kind of taking what I'm learning in this role that I have and all, you know, keeping up to date and up to speed with like regulations and, and things going on in the environmental world that, you know, modern day citizens might not have access to knowing or, um, just really learning about and sharing that with the community, how they can further their environmental awareness and education. You know, just 
as much as explaining environmental protection agency, like you can go on their website and you can learn this, or if you're concerned about the soil in your backyard, cause you're going to go grow a garden. Like how can I, you know, show you the way to going about this every day? I'm learning something new pretty much with my job is why, why I love it. And, um, it's um, keeping me like up to par so I can kind of bring that information back to the community and share that with them uh, more in like layman's terms and just making sure that the community is environmentally aware and can have access to that. Because I think that's one thing where environmental injustice lies is just the lack of education and the lack of having this information even talked about in, you know, mainstream media, you know, it's kind of tucked away. So kind of bringing that, you know, into the light for the community, I would say. Yeah, that's really important because even in communities that are, you know, more privileged or have access to high level education, still a lot of people don't really have a don't really have a clue about a lot of environmental issues or how nature actually functions. There might be some hot topic environmental issues that they want to advocate. But then when you get into the like, you know, how does the plant actually get nutrients from the soil? And how is this related to all the life forms that depend on it? It's not a super popular or sexy topic, it's, you know. It's, it's right, right. It's it's not. I mean, a lot and of people want to go and yell about you know climate change and stuff because they perceive that we shouldn't destroy the planet. But maybe the level of depth into like how the interconnections of nature actually function as a basis for why this is an important thing to advocate is, you know, it's it's, it's yeah. Like I said, it's not necessarily yeah. even common in you know, well-educated, privileged, you know, communities. So areas that have a little less access to resources, it's even more of a challenge. Yeah, I mean, the environmental departments in a lot of universities are just, you know, 10 years old. So just environmental awareness in the grand scheme of just like humanity is is kind of new. Yeah, we can't forget about it. Ecology became an official science in the 1970s. Right. And yet the, you know, humans had already been on the moon and, you know, discovered nuclear technology by that point. Right. Now the environment is, uh, we're in a scare here and now we're trying to go to Mars. So it's just all, you know, a little backwards. It's like, oh, the environment's going down. Yeah. Let's just peace out. Let's, <laughs> let's go to Mars. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, it's kind of funny because if you go back, I think even what? like Leonardo da Vinci said that like, we know more about the heavenly bodies above than the soul beneath our feet. <laughs> it's that's something that still holds today but like it's it's something you would think like we'd have a better handle of it but it's something now that i think we're realizing how well kind of in the same way how like fungi people thought they were plants up until the 70s and then it wasn't up until the 80s when we actually had molecular biology work to look at the dna of these organisms was practical and affordable to to research level that we could actually confirm oh these are actually are like a separate taxon and then that even allowed us to actually investigate the microbial diversity it's like you think about how well we've we've identified less than two percent of the microbes out there because 98 percent of them don't grow in agar you know they don't grow in a media versus they're only growing in these niches so realizing that oh it's like the soil it's actually the superorganism. it's not like this reduced system right yeah so what um type of research do you plan to be performing at the the freights and you know your project where you got this property you've well actually let, let me back up there a minute we've been talking about the the freight and moving the freight we're talking about um, freights are mm-hmm. you know, also called, known as shipping containers <laughs> and uh, let's just get a little bit into the background of these things since it's one of the words in the name of your business uh yeah like wh- where do these shipping containers 
come from? Uh, how do you acquire them? And why are they useful for research or growing food potentially? Freight containers, shipping containers, um, you know, they're used for worldwide trade and transportation of cargo. So they're essentially just reusable steel boxes. And you can find these, I mean, it's just as simple as like Googling shipping containers for sale and, you know, different companies will come up or even on Craigslist if you want to spend the time kind of investigating through there. But um, a lot of people are selling these and they're utilizing them for something for like a shed or like a temporary storage container, maybe on a job site or something. And they only need it for like an X amount of time and then they're ready to let it go. So you can kind of find these easily anywhere, which is really, really another um reason why they're so cool they're mobile they're modular you can start small with like expansion in mind they're um, pretty cost efficient and they're super sturdy and weatherproof you know they're like shipping these like across the oceans stuffing them so they do make them really weatherproof and sturdy so the reason why i kind of wanted to um, utilize these containers they're super functional and the fact that they can be kind of set anywhere so even if you have just like a small side lot or something it's it's a it's a nice sturdy manageable space that you can work with even in a small area yeah we're just starting starting there it it is a you know makes it a little bit more difficult because you don't have all the you know amenities right away you kind of have to build it out from the ground up depending on what kind of container you're starting with and we can get into that and like how i'm converting it and whatnot yeah, let's do that. Let's let's nerd out on the logistics of setting up a shipping container space. Um, I guess first off, what did you put the shipping container on top of on your property? Initially, I had it at a friend's warehouse where I just had set it on cinder blocks. So that was just temporary where I could build it out in a more um, convenient space that had like electricity and water source. So originally just putting it on cinder blocks and that's good for an X amount of time. Cinder blocks can kind of degrade over time, but now being moved to the property, we had just put um, concrete slabs. We didn't do a full concrete slab. I didn't really want to do that. It's just a lot of money and taking away some of that green space, even if it is just underneath the freight, who knows in, you know, 10, 20 years, if this container is going to get moved and I didn't want to just leave a big concrete slab. Right now, they're just on three by three, six inch concrete slabs in each corner. Cool. Didn't know. And it's going directly on the slab in this setup? We did have to shimmy it because, you know, the ground isn't level. So on top of the concrete slabs are additional concrete cylinders that were leveled and measured up to size to have the freight containers on something level. So essentially, we'll be going right on top of concrete cinder blocks that are on the concrete. slabs nice so you got the freight it's down on these concrete slab corners what do you do next to it to turn it into a lab (sighs) patience a lot of patience (laughs) and time at home depot no i'm just kidding so um we did everything diy so it's been like a wonky road i guess you know things aren't perfect depending on you know the level or degree you want to take your laboratory to what I did is I had a carpentry company come and like do the build out, um, separating into rooms so I could have different rooms to work with, like a sterile area and then a workspace and then kind of a common area. So I would say get your layout, like how do you want to lay it out and then build that out. And then from there, it's just kind of how you want your cosmetics to go. I would say one 
important thing to keep in mind is that the floor, it's usually a bamboo floor that is um, already in the container, but it's treated. So you do want to kind of cover that up just so you're not having VOCs being exposed to these chemicals all the time. I put a insulation down and then plywood. And then um, you can, you know, put anything on top of that after enamel or whatnot. Something that will uh, not soak up water, though. Right. In the lab, I did like FRP, which is like the fiberglass. I did that everywhere. But the floor, I did the enamel. So it's just like easily cleanable, wipeable. So what type of research are you planning on doing in your shipping container lab when it's fully up and running? Ooh, I'm so excited. <laughs> this is I'm like this is getting really exciting um to talk about because I've been it's been a long road building this out and I'm just I just want to get to like researching already and like putting my ideas uh, into play, but I do want to work with the soil like in Detroit. We have a lot of metal contamination heavy metals and different pHs and hydrocarbons and whatnot. So I do want to work with the soil within the city just for community health, but also working with different constituents. Yeah, doing some microremediation with the soil is definitely on the list. Cool. And do you have ideas of what type of tools or instruments or kind of equipment you would have in the lab to um, you know, run the tests or what type of tests or procedures you would be using this space for? I think in the beginning, I might like even send samples out just to kind of get these projects put into play and not having, you know, all of the equipment easily accessible or affordable at this time. But, you know, a sieve and different kinds of things to easily, you know, assess the soil and separate it for sure, but might even send out some soil samples to a third party in the very beginning, but eventually getting everything there. Tess, what kind of... um methods or approaches do you think um, could be applied for you know citizen science outreach so more so like how what are ways to maybe make people in the community aware about resources they have in their community for like soil testing or even tools or even frameworks to help people learn how they could participate in the work that it doesn't have to rely upon work with maybe a private or public or municipal organization that would mediate that where there may be a way of like educating through this kind of environmental advocacy through citizen science and environmental science to kind of help jumpstart ways of people understanding what's in their soil or how to assess or understand what are the best things that need to be done before they can maybe work with the land. Yeah, that's a good question. Good point. Good thing to bring up. So essentially like kind of getting people involved like on a grassroots level, just that they can kind of do on their own, right? It's what kind of what we're getting at here. You know, just kind of forming a relationship, I guess, with soil in the first place. You know, a lot of people, we just kind of trample the ground beneath us without actually really thinking about it, you know? I, and I think it's because it's just like a dense, dark place, right? Unless you're like digging, it's not right there. It's something we forget about. We forget to even look down, you know? We're just like head, head in the clouds kind of thing. So I think, it, you know, beneficial to start with just introduction to like soil and allowing people to come and just, hey, let's, dig a little hole, bring the soil up on the table, kind of a tabletop kind of study of just like separating it and explaining the different dynamics within soil, the different kinds of soil, you know, you go five feet and it's all clay in Detroit. So it's like, oh, (laughs) gets a little um, boring, but I I would say- Where where I live, you go uh, like two or three inches and it's all clay. So just if that makes you feel any better. (laughs) 
Thanks. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, kind of just an introduction to people just about soil and like so they can form that eye to eye relationship with it and kind of just seeing it firsthand in a different way and then kind of diving deeper into like the microbial activity and and how th things are connected like within the soil web and how everything kind of plays out and then kind of going further into hey there could be contamination from x y and z how do you kind of look for that or what are what are some kind of signs that your soil might be contaminated and then going further as to you know what can we do to help this in a biological mycological way so i think it's it's about starting at the basics do you have any uh, recommended tests people could use off the top of your head for you know not using scientific instruments but just through observation or your five senses being able to tell whether soil is you know contaminated or you know looking rough and needs some love I mean, yeah, definitely utilize, you know, your, your senses, the nose knows, you know, if you can smell anything like kind of hydrocarbon, which is like a fuel or diesel based, that's something to keep, you know, a, a nose out for. Um, if your soil is like really dry, there's not much like humus there, then you soil might be like a little infertile. So I would just say, yeah, utilizing your senses, your nose, eyes, and, and definitely the touch, but you don't want to go around playing in contaminated soil. So <laughs> What do, yeah. what do you, what about Leaf? I know you uh, have some, some good techniques there. Do I? Oh, I have some, <laughs> I guess. A lot of what you just said. Of, oh, um, a whole repertoire. <laughs> right. Uh, it, yeah, I mean, seeing how, how dense it is, the, the structure is a major one. When you dig it out, like, mm -hmm. does it kind of hold together? Does it fall right. apart? Is it really mm -hmm. dense and hard? You know, and and there's other cues like you're saying with the smell, not just for smelling um, contaminants like petroleum hydrocarbons, but also if you smell more of a kind of fermenting, uh, you know, kind of urea type odor that, you know, then that can be an indication that it's gone completely anaerobic or waterlogged. Right. The color mm -hmm. of the soil, if it's like a, a grayish or you know, gray or black color, not like black, like, you know, dark brown, rich humus, but like an actual right. black color. Those are usually indications it's anaerobic. There's a, there's a lot of, a lot of ones, um, that, you know, draw on different disciplines, just from standard soil analysis to wetland hydric soil, uh, criteria, which, uh, you know, maybe we can, uh, not in this discussion, but we'll share some, maybe some resources on looking this kind of stuff up. But yeah, the the smell the smell's a major one. I think I think it's a uh, one of the more important ones, and uh, I shouldn't recommend it, but you know, taste might help too. But uh, yeah. <laughs> if it's contaminated, you maybe <laughs> put it in your mouth. What is it? Uh, what's it called? Uh, geophagy. It's like there's actually reports of people like eating soil, probably before like anthropogenic disturbance. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting. There's some interesting details to like where. The human people like were living far more in tune with like their ecosystems and like their gut health was probably far more diverse in microbial activity. So maybe you had microbes in your gut that allowed you to solubilize some of the nutrients out of the organic matter that was in the soil. Yeah, which is pretty I, wild. Why spend hundreds of dollars on capsules lacking in vitamins or minerals and microbes? Eat a pile of dirt. Well, we've even right. Leaf and I have even talked to some people that, like talk about drinking your compost tea. And even like a friend that like mentioned like eating like a bit of like cultured microbes from the forest that was like grown out of rice. But that's like some out there stuff. But like there 
are some things like if you were to like some crunchy stuff yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) diversify yeah so on the opposite end of the spectrum because i just asked you about um you know kind of low-tech sensory ways of assessing soil would you like to share any high-tech methods of analyzing soil using cool fancy uh modern scientific instruments uh yeah actually yes i would i I'm just like been so happy um, using this piece of equipment at work actually. Super savvy piece of equipment. It's called a UVOST. That stands for Ultraviolet Optical Screening Tool. And this is a really cool piece of equipment because it allows you to kind of assess the soil without actually doing a full sampling and like test analysis. So what it does is it utilizes ultraviolet light to um, kind of detect PAHs, so pretty much like NAPL like in the soil. So how we use it and uh, how it's performed is you um, take a geotech rig. So this is a rig that gets drilled down um, into the soil and you send the fiber optics down with the rig. And through like a window, it, it shoots out ultraviolet light that will feedback a graph or like a wave by detecting different aromatic hydrocarbons. So depending on like the size, it's like broken down into um, determining like the size of these aromatic molecules and it'll spit out a different waveform based on the size. So you can kind of determine, you don't really know exactly, you can't pinpoint exactly what the um, contaminant is, but you have like an idea, whether it's like diesel or like gasoline fuel. So this is super interesting and cool. It's a pretty expensive piece of equipment, but it's it's really fun to use. It's like this big machine that has like this fold out laptop and printer. And I feel like I'm in Jurassic Park because I'm always in like these like weird fields or something. And then I just <laughs> have like all this like tech savvy equipment and I'm like have this notebook um, laptop and like everything's like transportable. So it's it's kind of fun and I feel like a real scientist. Yeah, you're like a sci-fi <laughs> character or something. Yeah. yeah. So that you have to have a, some sort of, of like drill device to get into the ground to yeah, allow it to work. But yeah. but it may be so is it it's is it like less invasive than taking a soil core there though because you don't actually have to remove the soil to analyze it. You're just like right. shooting a laser out of it and yep. getting it on the spot. Yep, exactly. And um, if anyone's interested in learning more about piece of equipment, it's called the UVOST, um, and it's from Dakota Technologies, and they're based out of Fargo, North Dakota. Oh, Fargo, eh? Yeah, eh? And they you were like, send me there. they were going to send me there for training in February, and I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> really? <laughs> it's like the only time. It's like the only time they offer. I'm like, is this a joke? Like, I can only- <laughs> okay, send me. Here we go. It's an initiation, it sounds like. Right, yeah. So maybe maybe we could uh, back up a moment for some of our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with uh, the term PAH and aromatic hydrocarbons and kind of what those are, where they come from, why they're a concern, and and maybe even if you'd like to for us, Tess, bridge the gap into uh, why fungi are significant when it comes to PAHs. Ooh, all right. Here now, here are the rabbit. This is where the rabbit hole comes into play. Uh-oh. We just yeah. stepped in. <laughs> Brace yourselves. Here we go. Don't fall asleep, audience. No, I'm just kidding. This is actually really fun, interesting stuff. 
So PAHs are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. This class of chemicals, you can find them just like from natural occurring coal, crude oil, and gasoline. So a lot of these chemicals are found in the soil from underground storage tanks that might be leaking. We call these like a lust, like a leaking underground storage tank. These are not very uncommon, especially when we have gas stations that have been like abandoned. There's like a tank that's been down there from like the seventies or something. It's just been like leaking. So that's like just one example of like how these hydrocarbons can be found in the soil. Also from like just burning coal or oil and then like um, they can fall kind of down like the particles can fall down and like be left on like the surface layer of the soil. If I'm not mistaken, they they are formed as a byproduct of incomplete combustion, and Thank even you. Mm-hmm. even um you can you'll even like smoking a cigarette you'll be inhaling yes. PAHs in the process. Yes. Yep, burning tobacco that's one of them. Garbage, which is like was a big thing. We had a huge incinerator here in Detroit, and it's just awful. Garbage fires. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I burned some garbage in my day, but not like on a mass scale. Okay. <laughs> being honest and so what's what's the connection of fungi with pahs when we talk about aromatic molecules these are molecules that actually have a ringed structure how fungi can help break these chemicals down is the fact that um, lignin which is like what makes up like the woody composition of like trees and shrubs is actually aromatic as well it's actually an aromatic molecule so white rot fungi have the ability to break down lignin. These are like the mushrooms that you usually see, you know, on like an old stump or like a fallen log or a fallen tree that becomes a log (laughs) like in the forest. So what it's actually doing is breaking down the lignin and the cellulose in that wood and allowing these nutrients to be recycled into the environment. So because the structure on a molecular scale of pHs mimics that of lignin, the mushrooms are like, oh yeah, yum. I know how to do this, so let me do this over here too. So it's pretty amazing stuff that they just so happen to have this enzyme system. And they do this through enzymes, might I add. They have an extracellular enzyme system. So they kind of just spew out enzymes that will break down these structures into simpler, less complex molecules. So they're structurally similar on like the molecular level and... They're just going to work, doing their job. It's pretty interesting thinking about the ability for these fungi to like actively participate in directed evolution. They're learning how to basically been breaking down these substances since like plants evolved lignin in these complex structures. But through our activity in the environment, like we're basically adding this like artificial pressure. Think of how like we domesticated animals or plants potentially due to our influence we're domesticating fungi who are out there naturally breaking these things down albeit albeit they're like we're kind of starting to realize that they actually may be out there that those those ambient strains of fungi are pre-adapted and being stimulated by the by the anthropogenic contaminants yes it's like kind of like they were made for this in a way it's like we knew you humans were going to fuck shit up they predicted the idiocracy, you know, so they're just like, okay, we'll, we'll be ready to clean it up for you guys. Uh, but if you're talking about things like coal also, coal is derived from wood and woody plant right. material. And, right, and it's even, not... Even not, oil yeah. and oil, it's, it's, 
I mean, like petroleum oil comes from, you know, like buried ocean uh, microbes or algae, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so fungi are decomposers. And then it's like these contaminants that are being formed from burning old dead biological material. And, you know, I don't know how scientific that is, but, uh, you know, in terms of why there might be a, a deeper meaning and connection than just that fungi are just badass and figure out how to fix all of our problems for us yeah yeah thanks for bringing it back bringing it back science yeah so that that is a good point though absolutely we've talked about how fungi can break stuff down do you have any personal experiences or observations with fungi say growing in strange and contaminated parts of the city hmm let me see. Like, it, like in my actual area, I mean, it, it is funny. I So I, when I used to do, like, industrial hygiene, um, I was going to this Ford plant. called It was called the River Raisin, like, Ford plant. And Ford laid off, like, 90% of their employees, like, a couple days before Thanksgiving, which was, like, super terrible and kind of sad. And everyone just kind of, like, fled. They're just, like got up, go, they're like, screw this, you know, we're gone. So the the building became abandoned. It's kind of just like a storage center. So there's a few people that like move things around like on a high-low. So I would go and like test the air every like couple months just to make sure the building's not like completely messed up for like the 10 employees that still do work there. And I'd have to go in all these like weird upstairs areas that were like all abandoned. It was just, it was, it kind of was like out of a movie, like a post-apocalyptic movie or something. And, you know, I'm doing air tests and there's just like degrading floor and walls. And, and I'm like, oh my God, look at all of these mushrooms. And I was so happy. My coworker was like, ew, like that's gross. And, you know, I don't know how, you know, contaminating was. It was just like the t- deterioration of like that wood that they were like utilizing as like a food source. So that was pretty interesting. They were like in this one room that they were like all over the floor. It's like this dark, damp room. And that was pretty, pretty cool to come by. So I wonder if uh, that fungus was in the process of turning the Ford plant back into soil, maybe. On its way. Essentially, I'm sure that's what they would do. Breaking down all the way. I think about this a lot, you know, why we often put a number of things that are pretty toxic in building materials, like Mm -hmm. copper, chromate, arsenate, or even there's like residues of like formaldehydes or different aldehydes. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, given the fact that fungi and bacteria are like some of the most prolific, they they really, when you reset the ecological clock to like the parent material for like a disturbance event, really, when you think about when we're putting these materials to build structures, that's kind of like the same thing. We're just reorganizing or assembling these parent materials <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, a, in a structure that's beneficial to us as humans. So for all intents and purposes, I think about this a lot, how like black mold, like I hear one of the reasons why like flood insurance is very a dicey thing is because the spores are already in your drywall. They just need to be hydrated and start to like actually, you know, germinate and actually run on the substrate. And then basically it's like us as human beings, like we're very idiomatic and you go like, you know, anthrocentric kind of narrative and focusing on us, things being convenient to our living and our structure and how we survive and things. But, you know, it's funny how we, oh, there's like this and that. Well, it's like maybe this is just the the natural process ecological session trying to happen and we're trying to just try to like thwart it at our, at our every turn. So it's funny to think about that, like to step outside of the, the human perspective. 
Sure. Yeah. And like, they can, like when you're speaking of the mold, uh, you know, mold in people's home and such, I, you know, I kind of find mold being like a precursor um, organism. It's like, don't be mad at like the mold, you know, it's like, you got a leak somewhere. It's like, it, they're kind of being like courteous. It's like, hey, you got a water problem or like a, you know, your, your roof's probably leaking in this certain spot that you would never know. And I'm just popping out to, <laughs> to kind of warn you, you know? I like to think of it like that. Yeah, it is an interesting focus of how I think this is something fungi do pretty effectively. You know, and when I talk about fungi, like I try to kind of provide the, the broad scope of the interactions they have play in our world and influence and how they drive things, not only for decomposition, but recomposition. Because most people's kind of their experience of fungi either ends kind of at the kitchen cutting board of the music festival. Um, <laughs> and it's, well, it's, it's interesting because like, you know, on both aspects, they remind us that we're part of this ecology. It's not ego, it's eco, that we're part of, we're like, we play a role in this and that really that we're only we've only been here like in a blink of an eye not only on an ecological aspect but a geological times time frame mm -hmm. so you know it's funny because like very much like appreciating and studying fungi you can kind of see maybe through a career of research and remediation or studying fungi or understanding ecological section can understand the deconstruction of the um anthropocentric narrative or you know with certain kind of uh compost loving species they can do that for you in the afternoon maybe uh so there's there's kind of a whole like range of that influence and reminding us that like you know i kind of see it as the activities that we do as humans we can either decrease biodiversity maybe extract and produce things but that will kind of facilitate the negative kind of relationships with the pathogenic or the disease causing microorganisms probably fungi or we can engage in ways that are proactive and beneficial, mutualistic and interdependent that can actually cultivate the relationships more of the supporting ecological diversity and actually leading to the interactions that are beneficial. It's their world. They've seen the extinction events and collapses and shifts, and they've always kind of cleaned up the rubble and pushed things forward. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It's such an important point you brought up, Craig, about, uh, we need to know the beneficial ones. We got we got to get to know the community better. Our culture innately just focuses on the bad guys and the bad actors. You know, it even happens. I think this year it's been a big uh, reminder for a lot of folks because it's like, oh, there's this virus and it's it's dangerous. And then people are like, oh, how do I not inhale any virus? It's like, no, you're, you're inhaling more viruses than you could imagine yeah, every breath right. you take. Just Viral. like you're inhaling <laughs> hundreds of fungal spores with every yeah. breath you take. And it's so ubiquitous. if all of them are out yeah. there, they can't all be bad. Otherwise, you know, how would we be alive? Building that relationship with the more diverse microbial community is super important. And, and it seems like fungi can be a really good uh, medium to get into it or a, a vehicle for people to delve into that world and yeah i want to ask you tess a little more about the cultural and community education aspect of your work um, probably focusing on your property in pole town with the freights what kind of stuff do you help educate people on related to mycology and also just generally how does the the space that you hold for this education become also a community hub and with things beyond just the biology side point is to kind of keep it interactive and dynamic and open and welcoming so 
just scaring people away with science, you know, making science fun and showing people that science is all around us. Like it, it, it is us, you know, it's like, um, it's not just something that you study in the lab or like in a science class. It's very interactive in our day-to-day life and it's responsible for many things that go on and allow our body to even work or just kind of nature in general to play such a big role like in our lives and in the environment. Anything, I guess, from just like basic soil science to like fungi 101, like, yeah, what are fungi? So like, this is one thing I do like to tell people like that all mushrooms are fungi, but not all fungi are mushrooms. So like, even just as simple as this is that like, you know, a mushroom has a fruiting body, not all fungi do. The majority of fungi don't even have mushrooms. Yeah. So kind of breaking things down on like a simpler scale introducing science in layman's terms, just making things fun for kids. Um, whether it's talking about soil, whether it's talking about compost, how to incorporate this into, you know, your backyard or your garden, or even talking about environmental justice in ethnomycology, you know, I'm not an ethnomycologist or, but um, just even talking about the history of mushrooms and how they played a role like in humanity and beginner to intermediate cultivation courses, just kind of, giving people the skill set to take on mushroom growing, you know, just at home on a very DIY, low-tech scale. And and I think this space is allowing me to kind of challenge myself even with these workshops and presentations because mushrooms aren't the easiest thing to get people involved in, you know? it's Yeah, it's totally a, a subject where, you know, for the... Uh the uninterested or the uninitiated, it's kind of like, why? And then, you know, once you start delving into all of the whys, then it's like, mm-hmm. how could I not focus a large percentage of my attention on this topic? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and even mushrooms um, as a food source, you know, not everybody even likes to eat mushrooms. So it's like, oh, mushrooms for food security? Mush- I don't even like mushrooms. So that's like another challenging thing and kind of just like learning the palate of people and just making mushrooms more palatable. You know, I guess it's not just based on like community. It's just like it's from individual to individual. Um, yeah. Can I make a brief comment on that? Yes. I, I've, I've talked to plenty of people who are like, oh, I hate mushrooms. They're slimy. I mean, I kind of like shiitake, but and I'm like, wait, what, when you say you hate <laughs> mushrooms, what are you talking about? Uh, like, oh, right. you're talking about button mushrooms out of a can on a pizza or like, you're talking about yeah and, and and even beyond it being you know like old canned mushrooms there's also issues with the cooking technique of mushrooms and that if sure. you if you just like fill your pan full of a bunch of oil and then throw fresh mushrooms in it they're gonna get slimy because they have so much water in them and mushrooms can be cooked in a way where they are actually crispy if you know how yeah. to do it yep um and put into different types of dishes um i actually just made uh, mushroom jerky and that like got a lot of people's attention and I got like a five pound maitake and Ooh, made it all into jerky and it was I still have some I should mail you guys some um absolutely fabulous it was so delicious and it really like caught people's attention and like people are just like reaching out to me like how can I try this I didn't know there's mushroom jerky I'm like I didn't invent it like I don't want to take credit for it but I did take the initiative to like make it and it came out great and i just like encourage other people to kind of you know try something like that as well and i think it's something too as there's more of an initiative where people are leaning more into a plant-based diet where yes 
you know, it's interesting because like there's a whole range of like plant-based foods that actually aren't even that much healthier for you because they are heavily processed. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a big thing too, with food access, like oftentimes access to fresh produce, like our local produce, you know, that's available. It's funny how I think more people will be more interested to gravitate a plant-based thing than actually understanding like where to locate vegetables. And even too, the ability where in order to grow food that is good nutritional quality, but also is safe to eat, you need to have good soil. Most areas that are in food deserts, you know, are often in areas where there is a, a fair amount of environmental contamination from some kind of industrial history. So I think like the whole connection is the fact that these can be grown on waste streams that are available to people yeah. uh, in these areas, but also too can be grown in like very minimal conditions. That's like a huge appeal. And I think another thing too is that even people looking for economic opportunities, this is a way you can like produce food to like to feed your family, your your friends, yourself, but also support your community in a kind of unique way. Absolutely. And those are great points, especially like being able to grow them on a low cost budget and like in a, in a small space and just growing this highly nutritious food source on waste products that you get for practically free, you know, and, and reducing the waste, you know, in your community or you brought up some great points. I, that was great. Yeah. So have you experienced a shift in your perception? I, I know I have where uh, I see plant material plant residues or organic waste piled up somewhere and i'm thinking like oh what could be done with that especially you know this time of the year when people are getting all their, their leaves raked up and their landscaping done not necessarily you know i'm gonna go try to grow mushrooms on a Blue leaf pile but yeah and i actually harvested a bunch of bluets this year i hadn't i created nice. an unintentional bluet patch a year or two ago because i oh you blew it <laughs> Oh no, you blew it! <laughs> I did. I blew it all over this pile of leaves, and and I uh, yeah, I was just gathering leaves and putting them in a shredder and piling them just to have some nice, you know, gardening mulch. And then you know, the next year I came and oh, here's some random mushroom. And then oh my gosh, mm. there's giant bluets growing everywhere. So I loaded up more leaves mm. onto the same patch of ground again, and this year a bunch more bluets growing, with no inoculation. But 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 yeah, just having that lens of you know seeing what some people view as a waste product like they're they're throwing all this stuff out on the curb so that they can have someone come pick it up and take it away for them when this is all potentially rich organic matter that can be used for soil building propagating and you know indigenous microorganisms or growing out fungi mm -hmm. and the biggest irony is when you see someone in the neighborhood who's got like 10 leaf bags on their curb in the fall and in the springtime you see a pallet of mulch bags that they bought from the yeah. hardware store oh my gosh yeah it's like hey gonna save yourself some money and time right there but yeah absolutely like i'm almost like feeling bad like oh i wish like just because the operation that i'm doing is not like fully up yet and i've just been busy in so many different areas i'm like oh i like start even feeling bad like i want to utilize this stuff so much and it's like but I can't right now at this time you know so it's like i just seeing it as a source but all then like feeling bad if like i can't even use it at the moment so definitely understand your perspective there and it's even crazier when you know once even a small mushroom growing operation gets going you start to accumulate a lot of biomass after people fruit mushrooms pounds of mushrooms equals tens of pounds of the substrate or the biomass which is still active right people call it spent spawn but it's like that's something that is like incredible for bootstrapping the not only organic matter for the soil but also the microbial activity in the soil 
Mm -hmm. So it's, I think about how people oftentimes, rather than just composting it, that's something that'd be great just to add into your soil and start building that organic matter. And, you know, to my understanding, in a lot of disturbed soils, unless there was an extreme event like contamination or like bear stripping, Oftentimes there are spores of mycorrhizal fungi and even insisted bacteria and, and nematodes and uh, that basically will start building the soil ecology back if the right conditions are just available. So it's kind of amazing because like they're holding out like in this disturbed area, just waiting for the right organic matter and, the, and these decomposers to kind of start, spark the flywheel of ecological succession. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Just staying dormant, you know, until conditions are right, you know, for, you know, what is specific to that species itself, for, yeah. for sure. And it's nuts to think that even the, what quote unquote, the waste stream of mushroom cultivation actually further is so valuable, which is something that's interesting. It reconstructs the aspect of like substrate from like scouting out these materials that could be used to grow mushrooms, but then also too, like that kind of transmutation of after being myceliated, how much potential there is in that biomass. Yes. It just keeps enriching and then it can be like distributed. Yeah. Keeps in enriching and distributing. So sounds like what you're working on. <laughs> so yeah. uh, do you have any fun stories about, uh, you know, kind of this community space you're at now? Any relationships you've made with people in the neighborhood or things you, you've learned from you know, talking to the folks who are gravitating to your space there? Oh, it's been, it's been great. Definitely, you know, felt super welcomed and um, just happy to be in that neighborhood and that community in general. I've developed some great relationships. It's funny, I met this girl named Marie about 10 years ago. She had rode her bike to Detroit from California and it was like her first day getting in and she was coming wow. to like this, yeah. And she was, she was coming to kind of be a part of this like restoration project that I was a part of. And I was actually the first person that she met in Detroit we became good friends and kind of over the past 10 years, we kind of went in different directions. Like she ended up doing a bike tour in South America and then going back to California and then coming back here and, you know, always staying in touch and being like a light in each other's lives, but not always directly involved in each other's lives. And she lives across the street from the property. And like, so 10 years later, we find ourselves together again. And it's just a beautiful thing and a nice reminder of like kind of coming back to your roots in a way. So that's a really cool thing that kind of happened throughout this. And my neighbor, um, Alex, he calls me muscles because like I'm always like out there doing some sort of like <laughs> labor. So he calls me muscles and he actually has been teaching me how to use nunchucks, which is really cool and, and fun. And then there's Freddie. He's actually handicapped. Um, he drives like the jazzy wheel scooter around and I noticed like his his like wheels were all jacked up from like the poor conditions of like this neighborhood streets. and. Got him a new set of wheels for his, his motorized chair, so um, that's been great. And just, you know, it's a really fun community and um, just getting to know people and uh, having them come by and just, you know, what are you working on today? Or just being super uh, open and funny and nice. It's, it's, it's been great. So it's a good start, that's for sure. Have you convinced any of them to become mushroom farmers yet? Um, Morris, Morris is uh, such an interesting old, um, older black gentleman who, um, grew up down South, like on farms and he's always just like super interested. He's super in tune to nature and he's even teaching me things about like this bird. And I'm like, oh yeah, I, you know, I like to watch the birds, but I don't really know much um, about birds. So it's just like all these different things that he's teaching me. And then even just, I had a little garden this summer just cause I wanted to grow something while I'm working there all the time, have a little garden and 
you know, teaching me some of his techniques. And then I tell him, you know, I'm starting this for mushrooms. And he's like, oh, mushrooms. Like, I didn't know you can grow mushrooms. Just like, just super interested and super curious. And I'm like, don't worry, the time will come where like, we're gonna have workshops and I'm gonna teach you like how to grow mushrooms, but you know, um, with time. But you know, every, every time I see him, he's like, brings up, you know, you can grow mushrooms and yeah so just kind of opening that that mind state to people too is just like super exciting to see people get really happy about it and interested from the get-go so i think it's gonna take well nice that's great to hear we want to be mindful of your time we're starting to come down the home stretch here mm-hmm. um yeah. our, so i guess you know we, we still got a little bit of time to riff but you know maybe we could like zoom out to, you know, big picture ideas of, uh, you know, kind of the future trajectories of mycology and its role in communities and science. And uh, do, do you have any like big thought questions you want to ask Craig? Yeah, I think in a lot of my own perspective, definitely, I think kind of <laughs> focusing on this aspect of citizen science. And I think Mycology is really appealing and has a lot of potential with engaging people who not so much aren't interested in science, but maybe had a bad experience or maybe got turned off to it through some interaction of it being complicated or maybe having a introduction that wasn't so like accessible. And that's kind of the big thing is like it's such a new field. And I see a lot of the same story is that there is so much potential of different areas to explore that you don't have to be like one particular type of focus. It doesn't have to be you know, cultivation or remediation or soil. It could be like, a, it could even be a smattering. Even the aspect of art, like people like, you know, they've kind of entered this, the public subconscious more and more so. I've kind of seen them popping up and more in like, you know, TV and art and imagery and like clothing and kind of things like that. But yeah, I, yeah. I guess, I guess kind of the, the kind of final thought question is wrapping up is like, how do you see mycology or talking about fungi as like an on-ramp to getting people into science through a means that they're, they find accessible. That's not this very like traditional drier clinical aspect that, you know, getting people enthralled with the, the fungal world, realizing how deep it goes and that there is so much to explore and discover that everyone is kind of on the same kind of playing ground. I guess I would say, because I, you did bring up a good point. It is, um, you know, mycology is kind of just groundbreaking right now. It's, it, it has been an overlooked and understudied topic for so long that it it opens up a lot of doors for new discovery. And in a world where we think like almost everything is kind of figured out or like, what's something I can discover that's new? I mean, this could be an exciting field of science for a lot of young kids or young adults or old, it doesn't matter, I guess, um, just to discover something new and just like be super gung-ho about diving into a field or realm of science that is um, kind of overlooked and has been understudied, as well as opening up the field of science in general in like a fun and enthusiastic way and not so like dry clean or cut like you were saying like fungi is funky you know it's fun it's cool it's weird it might you know be a topic that would like draw in people in like a more abstract and um goofy way i would say you know like a different audience than just like people that might just be interested more in the uh, drier side of science i think through citizen science we can help 
expanding our knowledge on fungi in general, as well as like other natural sciences. So, you know, through this community project that I'm doing, I'm hoping to just expand people's awareness on science in general, but in a fun and interesting and welcoming way. Science often can seem intimidating to a lot of people, especially like children. So trying to just make it fun and using fungi to like help bridge that gap. That's really cool. Yeah, on, on that note, in terms of the connection of citizen science and mycology, because mycology is relatively uh, understudied, there's way more opportunity for citizens to actually make important discoveries, whether that's finding a new species of mushroom that's never been identified before or mm -hmm. something like that. And at the same time, if you want to get into mycology, and you, I mean, literally, if you spend a few weeks studying and reading about mycology, you'll probably know more about it than everyone else you know. And like, so, <laughs> yes. in, in terms of like getting some it's sort empowering. of payoff, fat, <laughs> if you start learning about trees or flowers or animals, it's like that, lots of people know a lot about those topics, but not right. as many people are as adept with, you know, understanding fungi. So, for someone who wants to feel like they're getting some sort of payoff or reward for their scientific pursuits in terms of you know feeling like they're a you know smart or an expert in their community you can you can get there quicker with mycology because just not that many people have done it um i want to ask you one last question Tess. that's kind of related to what you're saying especially when you're talking about trying to inspire young adults this is going to be a little bit of a shift in topic more based on your experience uh, in the environmental consulting world do you have any advice that you would give to young adults or the, you know, college students, recent graduates who are interested in getting into environmental consulting and, you know, any advice that you would pass down to those types of folks from your own experience? Yeah, I would just say being aware of like your area and like the culture and just current events that are going on and try to stay like up to par with that. That way you can connect, kind of connect with people better and um, as well as just staying up to date on like regulations and I don't mean to sound boring and stuff, but that is a big part of it. And being able to talk to people, a big part of like consulting and, and the environmental world is just being able to talk to people about things that are going on and, and being conscious of current events in your area, what things might be going on and what might draw people's attention and where you might be needed. So um, I would just say, you know, being aware of, you know, your surroundings and the people that you might be um, coming in contact with. Absolutely. What do you hope that fungi freights can do for not only helping engage people with learning more about fungi and mycology and the environment, but maybe even for the aspect of being a template for community building or kind of creating these kind of ecologically focused community resource centers? Yeah, well, I, I definitely hope to be like established and like up in operation here in Detroit um, at my current location, being in a welcoming hub for people, all different cultures and aspects throughout their, their lives and different aspects of life in general, but also to expand. I'm um, working on projects in Puerto Rico, and that's like a, a whole other topic, but even expanding these, um, these ecological hubs elsewhere, because, you know, working with such a mobile modular system. I'm hoping to kind of expand them even um, in other areas of the country and even the world. So yeah, seeing where uh, this kind of system can um, 
lead us to, you know, on a, on a larger scale. Very cool. I, I caught that reference to Puerto Rico. Maybe you can come back and join us some other time and tell us a little bit more about that. I would love to. I'm actually going back um, November, if um, oh, the end of November, yeah, to do a follow-up workshop. And um, of course, you know, if COVID, you know, permits, what you know, everything goes well with that. But COVID we do permitting. have a, yeah, COVID permitting. We do have a um, second workshop coming up. So yeah, that could definitely be something that we set up again to talk about next year very cool well thanks so much for joining us and being generous with your time and before we let you go would you like to tell the listeners how they can follow your work keep up with what you're doing and even potentially support your work if they feel so inclined yeah sure thanks for that and thank you for having me by the way it's always great um, to talk to both of you my website is um, www.fungifreights.com i'm also on like the social web, um, Instagram, Fungi Freights, um, as well as Facebook. I don't have a funding source at this time, but um, just signing up for workshops or I do offer consultation on my website. So that's always a way um, to kind of help support the mushroom mission. Thank you. Thank you, Tess. All right. That was a great conversation with Tess Brzezinski. If you want to keep up with Tess and follow her work, you can find her at FungiFreights.net and on social media at FungiFreights. And if you enjoyed this episode of Applied Mycology or any other of our material, then subscribe to the show and follow us on social media at Applied Mycology. Thanks for listening. See you next time.